Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, conductor on the Coast Starlight. All right. Did you do some train research to come up with that one? I really did. I, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm, uh, I'm not going to say I'm fascinated by trains, but I am interested in trains because as a comedian, you know, you always see uh, comedians performing on boats and ships. I always thought it would be cool to be a comedian who performs on trains. That is something. It could I, work. I hope you, I hope you get to uh, realize that ambition someday. I'd like that. And that would be uh, much appreciated by a character that we are going to talk about in this episode. In this season, we're talking about the films of 2003, and we are here in our second episode talking about uh, our first feature category, a notable debut from a notable filmmaker. And we are talking about director Tom McCarthy and his film, The Station Agent, which has a lot of stuff about trains. Uh, main character, Finn McBride, played by Peter Dinklage, who is a, a train uh, aficionado, I guess we could call him. I think he's more than aficionado. His entire career revolves around trains, Josh. Yeah, and his, his not only his career, but really his entire like life and personality in many ways <laughs> seem to revolve around trains. So that, uh, that works out because he uh, inherits a little train depot in New Jersey and uh, gets to live, in a way, live his dream of being immersed in the world of trains. I, I guess. guess, I guess kind of, you know, he's kind of a hermit and, you know, all this stuff. He doesn't really want to deal with people, but then people find him. Josh, I want to, before we get into reviews and everything, I think Tom McCarthy might be the least well-known of all the first-time uh, directors that we've covered, right? Um, yeah, that may be the case. Um, and we, as we were planning this season, we had, I, I felt like we had some like not so great options. And not to say that Tom McCarthy wasn't a good choice, but I feel like he didn't have a lot of competition here. And even if he isn't that well-known, he certainly has made movies that are beloved and successful. And so maybe he's one of those directors that if you've seen one or more of his movies, you might not put that together like, oh, this is the filmmaker. But he's had a, a successful, if a spotty career that we'll talk about later in this episode. But yeah, he may not have the name recognition of uh, Cameron Crowe or John Hughes or Ben Affleck, people that we've talked about, David Lynch, um, in that we've talked about in previous seasons. Right. But I think his track record is better than Spotty, as we'll get to. And this is probably my favorite of all his movies. Yeah, I mean, that's a good uh, it's a good one to have as a favorite. And it was I mean, it was a, an auspicious debut for him after his career. I mean, he, he was and still is an actor, but never, you know, unlike when we talked about Ben Affleck and Gone Baby Gone in our 2007 season, where obviously he was a major star at the time and decided to shift into uh, becoming a director. Tom McCarthy wasn't really a big star. He was a working actor, much like him as a director. I feel like people may have seen him in things, but they wouldn't necessarily know his name. They might not recognize him. Um, but this really allowed him to have this whole flourishing other career as a filmmaker, as a writer and director, he did both on this film. And so it was a, it was a small, low-budget movie. It was made for $500,000, but eventually grossed $8.7 million. So that's a, it's a quite a successful run there for a movie that was uh, a limited release, was never really uh, a wide-release film. But uh, it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2003, where it won three awards, um, not uh, the Grand Jury Prize, which will be our Sundance episode that we're going to get to later in the season. But Intrigue. It did win. <laughs> Much <laughs> like last episode, uh, when we talked about an alternate uh, category that uh, we were going to get to later. But this one did win the Audience Award at Sundance, as well as the Waldo Saltz Screenwriting Award and a special jury prize for Patricia Clarkson for her performance as Olivia. And this is, I mean, it's a small movie, it's an indie movie, but it's not surprising that this is also sort of a crowd-pleasing movie and the kind of thing that would win an audience award. As I teased in the last episode, Josh, when we were talking about this, 
I used the word lovely, and I really feel like that encapsulates this film. Like, I really enjoyed every minute of it the first time I saw it, this time. And I think you're right. It is a crowd pleaser, but not in that, like, ha-ha, rah-rah way. Like, these are real people with real emotional uh, issues, and um, I think the audience gets behind them. Yeah, it's not something that's like manipulative or anything like that, but it is lovely. I think that's a good word for it. It's very low key, but the characters are all really likable and you want to spend time with them. And I think that's what audiences would get out of this film. It won some other awards, uh, notably it won the BAFTA for Best Screenplay. And uh, as we discussed last episode, the prestigious Las Vegas Film Critics Society, um, they also awarded this with Best Screenplay, although um, I don't believe I was a member at the time. But I can endorse that selection from my fellow Las Vegas film critics. And what about you, Dave, now that you're a member of this ramshackle organization that used to have prestige, but is now just a front for money laundering? What Would you endorse it? I most definitely would. <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness yeah josh i mean kind of like nemo like we talked about like this one went on a big run of you know a lot of critic groups giving both patricia clarkson and the screenplay awards uh, and peter dinklage was nominated for a lot of awards and also won um two independent spirit awards best first screenplay and the john casavetta's award right it was it was certainly uh acclaimed in various circles uh, including by critics, it has a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is uh, quite impressive. In his review, Roger Ebert said, yes, this is a comedy, but it's also sad. And finally, it's simply a story about trying to figure out what you love to do and then trying to figure out how to do it. It is a great relief in any event that The Station Agent is not one of those movies in which the problem is that the characters have not slept with each other and the solution is that they do. It's more about the enormous unrealized fears and angers that throb beneath the surface of their lives. Finbar and Olivia could explode in one way or another at any moment, and the hyperactive Joe is capable of anything. And I did like that watching this movie. I couldn't remember like how much there was sort of romantic elements. And there is a bit, but I like that this movie is more just about friendship and community and these people coming together and not necessarily like hooking up and having romances, even though there's a little bit of that. I agree with you. And that's a tough thing to pull off because we're so conditioned to want to see the romance and to expect the romance. And I thought Ebert, I uh, noted that phrase down that he used there that enormous unrealized fears and angers that throb beneath the surface like that is something that one might use to like describe the character motivations in a, a stage play which i think you know mccarthy and these actors uh probably all have backgrounds in live theater and i think it um comes through in the best possible way in this film yeah, I, I I think you're right. Um, this is, I mean, obviously the location is is essential to this movie, but on the other hand, the action is is sort of minimal enough that you could almost imagine this having had an origin as a stage play in the way that these characters kind of interact with each other. So I did like that. I did I did wonder a little if you know, I mean, one of the great things about this movie, and I think one of the things that it got a lot of praise for, is the way that it it treats Finn Peter Peter Dinklage's character as a fully realized character and not sort of as this gimmick as uh, sadly uh, little people end up with in, in many, many movies and TV shows, including now. Um, but on the other hand, I wondered if it was a little like maybe one of the reasons it was timid or it was reluctant to go in that sort of romantic direction is maybe because that was like more than they felt an audience could handle with a character like this. But maybe I'm not giving Tom McCarthy enough credit. Yeah, I don't think you are because we do see um, elements of romance, um, not with him and Olivia, but really with uh, Finn and Emily, more so the Michelle Williams character. And the Olivia character is going through so much. I don't really think a romance on top of it would have uh, added to the story and it might not have been believable or maybe it would have. He's done such a good job with the rest of the movie. But, you know, I think one of the legacy points of this movie is that between this and Game of Thrones, Peter Dinklage has really changed the conversation of uh, dwarves as fully realized characters as opposed to like comic punching bags like you're talking about or one note, you know, jokes that we saw in the past. and 
uh, he's just such a tremendous talent. You know, I think, I think it's really good. And, you know, we do see those elements uh, throughout the film of the negatives uh, that people associate with dwarfism and, you know, the insults and the mockery, but at the same time, like it's treated real. And I believe everything that the character does and feels. So I think in a way it's really expertly done. Yeah, I think ultimately that is, I mean, even though I wondered that, I think I came around to thinking that that was the right way to go. And you're right that Olivia, the character has so much that she's dealing with in her life and she's mourning the death of her son and her marriage is falling apart that like trying to add in a romance with our main character might not really be believable or make sense for the character. So I think ultimately the balance is there, but it was something that it it just kind of came up in my mind. Well, if I could uh, just further uh, take it out of your mind, Josh, the, you know, McCarthy said he wrote these roles for those actors for, you know, uh, Dinklage, Cannavale and Patricia Clarkson. And he and Dinklage were friends. So I'm sure they talked about, you know, the role and the character um, beforehand and just kind of where they wanted the focus to be. Right. And I don't think that it in any way is is disrespectful to Peter Dinklage or uh, or to 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 dwarves. Um, but I think it's maybe it's just it's part of the evolution of the way that people like that have been depicted on screen. And maybe if you made this movie now, you could confidently include a romance and that would be a part of the movie that that would just be accepted. And, and of course, it should be. And I think we saw a lot of that in Game of Thrones. Right. And I, of course, again, I'm talking about on this from sort of from the perspective of the audience and not necessarily uh, from the perspective of the filmmaker that he wouldn't have accepted that. Elvis Mitchell in The New York Times said, in The Station Agent, a man named Finn settles into a remote outpost, a rundown train depot in the wilds of New Jersey that is so restful, it seems perfect for him. The movie's writer and director, Tom McCarthy, has such an appreciation for quiet that it occupies the same space as a character in this film, a delicate, thoughtful, and often hilarious take on loneliness. These three loners slowly melt into one another, but the relationship doesn't come easily to any of them. Their unspoken anguish says plenty, as does Finn's ability to provoke conversation from those who insert themselves into his circle. Yeah, um, I I get a agree and disagree with Elvis Mitchell here. My agreement is, and um, one of the more fascinating elements of the film is uh, the 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 quiet, the environment. I mean, dude, that takes such restraint and confidence, and to use use that as much as he did, because you know you're always expecting a movie this to happen, this to happen, this to happen, and it just kind of slowly goes along at its own pace, and it's very confident. But I don't think there are three loners. Finn is definitely a loner. The other two crave human contact. Uh, you know, uh, Bobby Cannavale's character, Joe, is clearly just wants friends and to be social. And Olivia is craving the contact that she lost with her son and her soon-to-be-divorced husband. Yeah, I think calling them loners isn't right. You could say that they're all lonely. I mean, or they're all sort of alone in a way, uh, but certainly you're right that that Joe and Olivia are really reaching out for connections, whereas Finn isn't, and it takes him a while to feel comfortable enough to to reach beyond himself. Um, and and this movie is very quiet. I was struck with how many scenes there are. I mean, it's part of his character, but how many scenes there are where people are talking to Finn or talking at him, and he just says nothing. He doesn't even say, leave me alone. He just is a stone wall. And, uh, you know, I do think that takes a certain level of filmmaking confidence to trust the audience, to understand the character's motivations if he just doesn't speak at all. Right. And also, um, you better have a damn good actor to pull that off. <laughs> and, and he does. Yeah. Uh, finally, Moira McDonald in the Seattle Times said, Tom McCarthy's The Station Agent is the sort of thing usually described as, quote, a little movie. It has no car chases, lavish spectacle, urban cityscapes or A-list stars, and its drama revolves more around quiet conversations than eyebrow-raising revelations. But its pleasures are by no means small. It's the story, earth-shaking in its own way, of three people who quietly become essential to each other. While many movies reintroduce us to the same old types, The Station Agent is an original. You've never seen these people on screen before, and it's a pleasure to make their acquaintance. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we talk about thinking about when this came out and how it was received. And, you know, we talk about the Dinklage character, but 
I remember Bobby Cannavale got a lot of attention too as bringing something unique. And now maybe we see that more um, as kind of like this best friend who presents himself in one way, but really has a lot more going on beneath the surface than he lets on. Um, and of course, you know, Josh, I'm a big Bobby Cannavale fan. I know. And there's a certain thing that maybe we'll get to later related to, to Jason's Bobby Cannavale fandom, but we're going to hold on to that for now. Um, I, and I, I think, I mean, I think you're right, but at the same time, I think it's one of the good things about this movie is it's not that these characters are so completely alien. They're identifiable. You can, you can relate to them. They're, they're human. They're, they're familiar. And he presents them in a distinctive way, and they feel like fully realized characters, but they're not feeling emotions or dealing with situations that are so foreign to us that we can't, as viewers, understand them. So, I mean, I think there's a balance there that the movie pulls off well. I think you're right, and when she calls it like earth-shattering or earth-shaking in its own way, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think like little in this sense is a compliment, that it's able to be so riveting and, you know, so um, immersive with taking something so mundane as just the basic day-to-day lives of these people. Right. I don't think it it needs to be earth-shaking in order to be good. And I and I think it's not, and that's fine, and that's good. Like that's part of what is effective about this movie, that it's not uh that way, that it it's just kind of a, a short little journey for these characters, but it means it means something to them. I could see old late, late show host Tom Snyder calling this a slice of life. <laughs> Tom Snyder, not someone I ever expected to come up <laughs> on awesome movie year, but I'm glad that he did. Um, so Jason, did you see this when it first came out? I, I was trying to think back. I don't know. I mean, this had to be around the time we live in Las Vegas where like the independent theater at the time was probably the gold coast, which is, a two screener inside. No, you think this was after the Gold Coast? Yeah, this was after that because I I mean, I did see this movie. I reviewed it in Las Vegas Weekly. And by the time I was doing that, the Gold Coast was gone. I This would have probably played at like the Regal Village Square. Sure. Okay, that was the other one. Then I don't think I saw this in the theater. I think what must have happened. I know my grandparents loved it. And as I've talked about before, they were great uh, enthusiasts of culture. And they would go into New York City to the Angelica uh, Theater and see whatever independent movie was playing at the time and i remember them calling me and raving about it but maybe i must have missed it in the theater but i was working around at blockbuster around this time so i probably got it on uh video or dvd right as it came out and um yeah i remember just feeling the same way about it then that i do now i just really really like this movie yeah and even though this did well for an independent film um, I imagine that a lot of people discovered it like you did eventually on home video after sort of the buzz built over the course of its theatrical release. And I did see it in the theater because I, I was able to review it. Um, I don't, maybe it was at the Village Square. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I remember I, I liked it. I mean, I think it had been building buzz already because it had been at Sundance and it was several months later by the time it got around to opening in Las Vegas and I got the chance to see it. So I think I would already anticipated that would it would be good. And, and I definitely enjoyed it and was intrigued and hopeful about what uh, Tom McCarthy would do next after this, which, uh, you know, we'll talk about. Um, Dave, did you see this uh, when it was first released? I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater when it first came out. Uh, I, I loved it back then. And I remember I bought the DVD as soon as it came out, too. All right. Maybe from, maybe from Jason at Blockbuster. That's true. What a time we would have had, Dave. (laughs) Uh, Any other background on this, Jason, that you'd like to bring up? I think we covered most of it, Josh. One interesting detail is that Olivia, the character, is an artist, and uh, all of the art was made by Jessalyn Gilsig, who we know from Boston Legal and Boston Public, maybe, not Boston Legal, and Glee, where she played one of the worst characters of all time. And yeah, it was Boston Public, but she was Tom McCarthy's girlfriend at the time. So I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, that, I noticed her name in the credits, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize that she was an artist, too, because I, I did recognize that name from uh, from her acting work. And uh makes sense there. And on a small production like this, right, you you enlist everyone in your life to help you out. And so it's like, hey, my girlfriend can draw let's have her create the art and it, it, it's good like the art looks cool 
Yeah, this is fun, and you know we'll get more into it. But like the locations are so much fun. This seems like a production that you would have wanted to be a part of. Like you know, hey kids, let's put on a show like where everyone's banding together to make the best project they can, and and they all you know get behind the vision and get it done. Right. Yeah. I mean, in that on a, a production at this small level, that's kind of you have to have everyone on board in that way. So we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on the station agent. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season, we're talking about the films of 2003. And on this episode, we've been talking about the feature film debut of Tom McCarthy as a filmmaker. The Station Agent, a movie that Jason loves. So, Jason, what what is the what do you love about this? I do like this film quite a lot. And Josh, for those people who are still wondering who Tom McCarthy is, probably his best known movie is Spotlight, which won the Oscar for Best Picture, and um, also The Visitor was very highly acclaimed. So, uh, The Station Agent, as we have obviously uh, stated, was his first movie. Um, Peter Dinklage plays this character, Finn who is, like we said, a, a train uh, obsessive, maybe we'll call him. And when sure. his boss dies, he leaves him an old rundown train depot in the middle of a very rural area of New Jersey. He moves in with the idea of like, hey, I'm going to fix up this, this depot and I'm going to live out my days here and I'm going to go train spotting and maybe train chasing and just just live my life and have no interaction with any human being ever again. It's what it seems like. But um, what I really like about it is it's a character study and I like all the characters and I like the interactions. I like the pace of this. Um, I think it's, you know, really memorable. Like when they're walking along the train tracks, you get some really nice shots there. And um, we've mentioned kind of the big three characters, but also Emily, played by Michelle Williams. And I think this is like, you know, a good indicator of what's to come from her because she's really a great actress. And then the Cleo character, who's the little girl who just wants uh, uh, Finn to come in and talk about trains to her class. She's she's very, very adorable in this movie. I don't know. It all worked for me. I, I, I can't really say there's any secret magic in this one. It just it just all works. Yeah, it's a really pleasant little character study, like you said, and not just of Finn, the Peter Dinklage character, but I think you get a really full sense of those other two main characters, Olivia, played by Patricia Clarkson, and Joe, played by Bobby Cannavale. Um, and and certainly it's more notable, I guess, uh, because Peter Dinklage is playing a kind of character that we don't usually see on screen and certainly not as the lead of a movie. But Tom McCarthy gives... Uh, attention and weight to these other characters. And even Emily, the Michelle Williams character, who's a much smaller part, you get a sense of her and the, the, the tough stuff that she's dealing with, with her asshole a boyfriend and she's pregnant and she's stuck in this town and she works at the right. library and all of that stuff um, in just a handful of scenes that she's in. So um, that is quite impressive. Um, and I like this movie too. I don't think I like it quite as much as you do. And it's, 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 it's a little twee at times. And there were moments watching it this time, I think, where I was like, I don't quite, it, I believe the characters as people, but some of the situations, like, why does Joe park his food truck where literally no one ever comes? Well, I don't think no one ever comes there. I think it's a, it's in a town uh, that's so small, it's a known landmark. And they, you know, they do know that that's a space um, that people go. And also trains pass by there, right? So um, do trains But do they ever... stop? I don't think they that stop. I, that I don't know, right? So we to, never to your that. point, Josh, uh, someone on Letterboxd called him a manic pixie food truck driver, which I thought <laughs> yeah. was really good. Right, well, and he also doesn't seem to have any concern about making a living. Like he parks the truck there and sells one coffee a day to Olivia. Cafe con leche. To, yes, exactly. A cafe con leche. And seems to be willing to sort of like call that a day and then just closes the truck to go hang out with Finn. And even when at one point, some customers, some random characters that we've never seen before show up and they're like, we want some sodas. And he's sitting right there and he's like, no, we're closed. I cannot literally like open a can of soda for you in my truck so that I can pay for my poor dad's medical bills. 
the off-screen dad of his who's who's sick in some undefined way that we never see. So, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily harmful, but it 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 just felt a little cutesy, like the way that the characters, their lives are constructed. No one in this movie seems to need to make a living. Finn doesn't have much overhead, right? He's taking care of himself. He's probably taking care of himself and nobody else for a long time. Olivia clearly has money because she has the house that she's living in is like her her and uh, David's like kind of summer house or getaway house. And uh, the Joe character lives with his dad, as far as we can tell. So maybe his dad's supporting him. Well, but his dad's, know, his dad's business is the food truck. He says at the beginning of the movie that he's taking over for his dad because his dad is sick. So if the food truck doesn't make any money, I don't think any of them do. I don't know. And I got no answer for you on that one, then. I, I think you're right about it being kind of twee and all that. But I also feel like this was this was before it was kind of before we got burnt out on this kind of movie. You know what I mean? And so it kind of it feels like it still had the goodwill of like, oh, this is kind of quirky and weird and different despite so many other movies coming after it that kind of felt that way that burnt us out. Yeah, yeah. that's what I meant. And, and, and I mean, it didn't it didn't necessarily hinder my enjoyment. I mean, I still like the movie and I like the characters as people, but I, it did strike me just like little things like that. Or, you know, Finn also, again, doesn't have a job, but I mean, he has to eat, you know, he, well, he has money. money. He clearly has money. He had I a guess, job. Yeah, well, he had a job, but he doesn't anymore. And I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me whether he inherited money from the sale of the model train store in the building that the lawyer tells him about in the beginning of the movie. So, but I guess we could give him that. But just little things like he shows up at the depot and it has no electricity and no running water. And like, does he ever turn that on? He never seems to have any lights or electricity, but like, does he take a shower? How does he go to the bathroom? I mean, of course he does. Do you really need that as a detail in the movie? You know? Well, I no, but on the other hand, it, it very clearly shows that he never has electricity in there. So it did make me wonder if he ever turned on the water. One thing I noticed is, and Josh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know this not being from the great state of New Jersey, but his, um, the hobby store that he worked in was in Hoboken, right? And the property, the train depot's in Newfoundland. And he just like packs a bag and walks along the train tracks, you know, to get from one place <laughs> to the other. I uh, I mapped it out. He walked 33.7 miles with his suitcase on train tracks to get to his new home. Yeah, that was a little ridiculous to me too. And I, I, I didn't know the exact distance because as you say, I am not from the great state of New Jersey, but it clearly was not nearby. I mean, the lawyer at one point describes it and says, oh, I drove past there one time or I drove through there one time, making it sound like it's somewhere far away. So yeah, and it's like, it's a really nice image of him walking along the train tracks with his suitcase and, you know, it looks cool. But I think that goes to the sort of tweeness of this movie that it it's, it's, sacrificing some logic for the sake of these these cute moments. And I don't mean to spend this much time like on my negative thoughts because overall I, I like this movie. I think it's very enjoyable. So, but there were just some things that stood out to me this time that maybe I hadn't paid attention to last time. There's definitely cutesy stuff. Like the first two times that Olivia and Finn meet, she almost runs him over, right? And it's like, all right, we're giving you this, but, and you know, there is like, reason in there that that happens but at the same time it's like it does get a little too cutesy but again like going back to it you have this character who's a really unique character and then you have these other characters playing against him and they're all different right you're not seeing the same relationship with him from any of the other characters so i guess maybe i overlooked that stuff because i was so invested in these relationships and the interactions yeah, and that's okay. I feel like, you know, we've talked about this a lot, like movies where there's some inconsistencies in the plot or things that don't seem super realistic. And like, if you're engaged in the story and you're engaged in the characters and you you are caught up in caring about what happens to them, then those little things don't matter that much. And And I think overall, that was how I felt. Even if those things came to mind, it was just passing. And for the most part, I was enjoying the character dynamics. I was enjoying the humor. I was enjoying the the emotional journey of these characters. And, and I think this is a good movie, but I mean, and I think in a way, maybe some of that stuff points to this being a first film that 
you know, maybe he's not uh, as uh, disciplined about uh, structure or thinking about those things as he might be as a writer later on. I mean, and who knows, maybe he wrote dozens of screenplays before this was produced. I don't know. But, but you know, there there's some sort of like uh, early uh, growing pains aspect to that. But again, overall, I like this movie. The performances are so good. I think that really like, that goes a long way toward uh, getting past any of those little inconsistencies. Yeah, it's funny that you keep nitpicking the screenplay because it won so many awards for screenplay, you know? Right. Um, but really, what did the BAFTAs know, Josh? So, um, but I think that's fair. Like, it's okay that that's, you know, that's what, you know, you want to criticize it. That's what bothered you about it. That's okay. And, you know, you're right. The performances are excellent. So I, I like I said, I feel like I don't need to spend this much time on the negative. I just wanted to kind of bring it up. But overall, I do think this is a good movie. And my, my point is that the characters are great and the characters have a lot of depth. If you want to talk about what is good in the writing, what is good in the screenplay, it's the way that he crafts those interactions and that he builds character through the way that they interact with each other and the differences between them. And you really get a sense of who they are as people by the way that they react to each other. So I think that's all really good writing and the performances are are, are great and they add to it, but certainly that starts with the writing. Yeah. And like we said, the supporting performances are also uh, top notch. I really like the stuff of them, um, you know, distilling the point of view. Everything is them on the train tracks or train chasing. And, you know, it's all like we have to go to Olivia so we can premiere our new video of us chasing the train. Like, I liked how that informed the plot in kind of every step of the way. Right. And and there's that level of just enthusiasm that these characters have. I mean, Finn loves trains, obviously. But Joe gets really into it, too, because Finn is into it and they rope Olivia in and they just are like happy to hang out and spend time together and watch this dumb little video that they've created because they just really enjoy each other's company. So I think I like that. And uh, also just sort of on a, a side note related to the train video and also, I suppose, to the small characters in the in the early part of the movie before Finn's boss dies when he's still working at the model train store. And there's a scene of these other train enthusiasts who come in and they're showing someone else's video. And uh, Josh Pace, who's a great uh, sort of character actor who always plays these weird deadpan characters, and he's narrating his video in this really like sort of uh, monotone voice talking about these incredibly irrelevant details yeah. about Oh, we went through a tunnel and it was about a minute in the tunnel. It was one of the darker tunnels in, in Canada. Canada. And I just found yeah. that scene hilarious for some reason. <laughs> that was. And I actually, you know, if the whole movie would have taken place in the model train store, I think that would have been an interesting movie, too. Um, I like the uh, Henry character that, you know, died at the beginning. Did you recognize him from any other movies that we've covered in uh, Awesome Movie Year, Josh? I mean, I recognized him. I think he's probably one of those guys where he looked familiar to me, but I then didn't go look up. But what what else was he yeah, in? Yeah, it's Paul Benjamin. Uh, and he was one of the three guys on the street corner in um, Do the Right Thing. Like the older guys who were trash talking with Sweet Dick Willie, you know. So. <laughs> right, nice. right. Yeah, I, I can... I can envision that. And he does. He brings a little, you you get a, a sense of him, even in just those few minutes and the the friendship that he has with Finn and uh, the way they have, you know, uh, this, this sort of obnoxious teenager who comes in to the store and he's kind of staring at Finn. And Henry just says, like, is there anything else? Like, hey, buddy, move along. And, yeah. you, you know, you get the sense of how these guys have been friends for all this time. And he always has Finn's back. And even though he's only in for a handful of scenes, um, you know, you can imagine their backstory. Yeah. And also that beginning is interesting because it seems like, you know, at least Finn is living above the store. I think they both seem to be. Yeah, right? and, they both know, are. They, they knock on the door and he calls him professor. So you already know that there's some type of interesting relationship there. And I mean, uh, I mean, Henry has that property, but you wouldn't be you wouldn't think like, oh, these guys are making bank here at this model train uh, store. So that goes along with what you're saying. Like, how does anyone make money? Uh, in this movie, but you know, maybe this is just uh, the good quiet life where a dollar goes a long way, Josh. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we do have that scene with the lawyer who who tells Finn that uh, obviously Henry owned the building where the store was. So that's probably pretty, you know, that could be lucrative if he was renting that out to other stores or something, you know, and I, I, I got the sense that maybe Henry was one of these people who 
actually, you know, who saved every penny he ever made. And it turned out that he actually had quite a lot by the time he died. And, you know, he owned that property. And I think there's a sense in that scene where Finn, as good of friends as he was with Henry, he may be, he didn't know that Henry had that property. He's surprised to discover it. So, you know, Henry has kind of quietly amassed this, maybe not a fortune, but, uh, you know, a decent uh, nest egg there that, that he's able to pass on to his only friend. So I don't think we needed to have like a detailed financial breakdown or anything like that. Um, but it was just a little, there were some gaps that I no, that's like could fine. have been filled that's in. Fine. I, you know, and Josh, I grew up in Northern New Jersey, which is very suburban and, you know, to the point of, you know, it's right outside New York. So you're, you're getting like, you know, um, more packed areas. So for me, like seeing that's that kind of area of Southern Jersey where it's, very spread out and a little more quaint. Like I really liked that scenery and I liked, you know, those walks along the train track and and seeing stuff like that. Very picturesque. It is very picturesque. I mean, they picked some great locations uh, on their limited budget to, to really put you in that world. Had you, did you ever go to Newfoundland, New Jersey? I don't think I've ever been to Newfoundland. No, I don't, I don't know why I would go other than if I was like, Hey, I want to go see this, uh, this uh, train the New Jersey Midland Railway, built in 1872, which currently still runs on the New York, Susquehanna, and Western Railway lines. There you go. Well, maybe someday uh, when you know travel is more feasible, you can make a pilgrimage to Newfoundland uh, to celebrate your love of this movie. You, you know, it's a it's a it's a great state to explore. I would be happy to explore lots of parts of New Jersey, Josh. Yeah, maybe you could write a concept album about it. Call it <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings from Asbury Park. No, never. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I was. I That's was, not a concept. Ever. I was mixing up the the two uh, rock stars of New Jersey. My my mistake. I apologize. That's okay, buddy. <laughs> Don't you worry about it. So, hey, I had a question, Josh. There's yes. that scene where Finn gets drunk and kind of lets his fears known to everyone, you know, and like, yeah, you know, look at me, take a good look, everyone, and then he walks home drunk. And um, we see him fall on the train tracks, right? And the train comes and just like kind of rolls over him. Did you take that as the reality of it, of the train just rolling over him? Or was it a dream that a train was coming and just rolling over him? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Because on the one hand, it seems unrealistic that he would be completely unharmed in any way by after getting run over by a train, even if it Uh, even if he like kind of fits in the space in between the tracks. So that would make me inclined to say it was just sort of a weird vision. But on the other hand, when he wakes up the next day, you can see that his pocket watch, which is one of his little quirks, has been smashed to bits by the train. So I think that's meant to imply that the train really did come. Couldn't you say that it it broke when he fell? I, I suppose that's true. Or or you could argue that it's 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 almost, I mean, as 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 realistic. Uh, or naturalistic as this movie is, you could argue that that's a sort of magical realist touch and that you're not necessarily meant to take it literally, but that doesn't necessarily also mean that it was a dream. Um, I think it's okay to have an unambiguous moment like that, even though otherwise this movie is very grounded. But I mean, I also could have done without it. Yeah. Um, The best part of that, though, is when you see Finn's face as the train's coming, it's almost like a sense of joy that this is how he's going to die, that a train's running him over, right? Like <laughs> this is his soldier dying in the battlefield type moment. Right. And and as drunk as he is, he definitely has time that he could get himself out of the way and he doesn't. So you kind of wonder too, if maybe, you know, that's, he's at his lowest emotional moment there and maybe he's almost feeling like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for this to be the end. And then he wakes up the next day having survived, and that maybe gives him a renewed sense of like yeah. life and purpose and 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 embracing his friendships and everything. So again, I feel like that that is a moment that's maybe it may be a little too uh big for this movie, and I, I could have done without it, but I think it works overall. Well, well it is a cathartic moment because even the breaking of the timepiece, right? Like because he's always running on time and keeping time and marking when trains are coming. So when that's broken, it almost frees him up to like you know, kind of live a little looser, I guess, overall. Yeah, that's true. That That's a good point. It's it's sort of a metaphorical thing that he's always carrying around with him. Um, and also, again, a, a kind of quirky twee touch. I mean, how many people carry pocket watches, even in 2003? Um, anyone in a rockabilly band? 
<laughs> Speaking to that pocket watch, though, just to point out real quickly, one of the funniest scenes of any movie of this particular year is when Finn uh, times Joe for how long he can go without speaking. That scene is so funny. Yeah, that's good. And he says it's been 20 minutes and Finn pulls out the watch and says nine, minutes. nine, nine yeah. minutes. Yeah, that is <laughs> that is good. And of course, Joe, who never shuts up, is reading all quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> and then he's reading The Kid Stays in the Picture, Robert Evans, the great uh, film producer's book in the hospital. So it, it is interesting. Yeah, Finn, Finn uh, you know, is particular. He's upfront about his particular particular. Say the word particularities, particularities, yeah, particularities. I couldn't get that one there, but he's also kind of a dick about them, you know, like in that scene, like nine minutes. He's so just kind of droll about it, you know. Matter of fact, nine minutes you could last night. You you said you weren't going to talk, but you know, it's kind of fun. Dave, you must have been excited to see Joe Latrulio from the state in there as a bad guy. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I had forgotten that he was in this. And and the the other actor who is sort of his buddy, who's also Michelle Williams' boyfriend, to me kind of is not, but it sort of looked like Andy Samberg. And so for a moment, I thought this was some sort of proto Brooklyn Nine Nine moment, but uh, <laughs> but it's not. Um, but Jolo Trulio has a great mustache in this movie. Sure does. <laughs> yeah, uh, when you know when they're making fun of him, you know they do obviously the Fantasy Island, the plane, the plane, right? And then one of the notes I had read is that you know. Peter Dinklage played Hervé Velasquez in a later film, which you saw, Josh, My Dinner with Hervé. I did not see that movie, but thank you for thinking that I did. I um, thought you did. <laughs> just because you just assume <laughs> I've seen every movie, which is fair. Um, yeah, I, 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 would, I would see that movie. I think it was, it was uh, well regarded. And uh, that is interesting that uh, Peter Dinklage. But of course, you know, if you're going to make a biopic about a famous little person, your choices for playing that role are limited right. and uh, you end up with Peter Dinklage. So yeah, uh, I got a fun story about Peter Dinklage. If you want, before we close out this section here, let's hear it. All right. I don't even know if I should be telling it, but I will. JB Rogers, who was a former uh, working associate friend of mine who directed American pie two and was thanked by Peter Farrelly on stage when they won best picture for green book. Uh, directed a uh, Comedy Central movie about a little person detective. Do you remember this? No, I do not. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it was called uh, Dave. Look it up. Look up Comedy Central little person detective. I, <laughs> it, it was something PI. It was like a play on it and whatnot. And JB at the time, this was shortly after this movie came out, and I remember he was telling me he kept going to Comedy Central to go to bat for Peter Dinklage, and they were like. Who would ever want to watch Peter Dinklage, right? So they wouldn't cast him. And they ended up casting the uh, the dwarf who was in uh, Scrubs, who was like the janitor's friend, which who was fine. But Peter Dinklage, like you don't pass on Peter Dinklage. And JB, when I was like, I would talk to him. I'm like, he's so good and like stationary. He's like, dude, I don't even want to talk about it. It pisses me <laughs> off so yeah, well, Peter Dinklage, you know, it, it took him a while, I think. And this this movie was a key element of that. But it took him a while to get that level of respect where now he's a he's a go to guy for not only those kinds of roles. But I mean, you cast Peter Dinklage as, as in anything. He's oh, uh, man. You know, one of the most choice. memorable scenes in Elf, you know, so that too. Yes. And, and uh, knee high P.I. Oh. <laughs> There you go. So. I, I I almost regret that we now learned the title of that because <laughs> yeah, I know. it makes it it makes it even worse. Yeah, but um, well, yeah, Tyrion is such a different character than this. This is you know, and, and we've seen so much range from all these actors. It's been um, you know, they're all kind of fun to follow. They are indeed. So uh, should we uh, rate this movie out of five uh, depots? I don't know. Five train depots, Josh. Why not? It's a solid four train depots from this guy. All right. I'm going to give it a three and a half. Um, and despite my my nitpicks, I do think this is a very good movie. I thoroughly enjoy it. So three and a half depots for me. Dave, how do you want to rate this one? I'm going with four. All right. Four depots from Dave. So, so what a good start to the season so far, huh? We got two. Yeah. That are all really enthusiastic about. Yeah, we'll see if we can break that streak. But uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a little bit. But first... We'll come back and talk about the legacy of the station agent. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this season on the films of 2003. 
We've been talking about the feature film debut of director Tom McCarthy, the station agent. And uh, of course, since that's our, our concept for this episode, the main legacy here that we'll talk about is Tom McCarthy's career as a director. And this movie was, again, very successful, very acclaimed. And it was it was the beginning of a career of what seemed like um, this, this kind of uh, series of small character-driven dramas that Tom McCarthy would make his next film, The Visitor, with Richard Jenkins. And then he made Win Win with uh, Paul Giamatti. And those and are then, both good movies, right? They are. I feel like those, I mean, and I haven't seen either of them in, in a while, you know, since they first came out. I felt like maybe those movies tipped the balance a little too far into that kind of overly cutesy, overly sentimental territory at times. And they didn't work as well as this one. But yeah, they were both pretty good. Yeah, okay, that's fair. But and and also I'd have to really go back and 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 watch them again to tell you specifically why I thought that. I will say that the most important legacy for me of the visitor is that uh, Richard Jenkins' character in that movie learns to play this this little drum. And uh, one of the greatest promotional items I've ever received is a visitor branded little drum that I still have sitting on nice. my counter. And occasionally we'll just you know casually drum on so yeah and we didn't talk about the soundtrack but it's a very nice score in the station agent as well don't you think dave yeah definitely it's uh it fits really well yeah it's a very 2003 sounding score with the sort of yeah. like guitar indie rock right sound. right like they got yeah. one of the members from rusted root to do it five <laughs> years later or something um uh josh but talk about the movie you really want to talk about from Tom well, mccarthy um I don't know which one you're referring to, but at first, first I was going to say, as, as you mentioned earlier, the height of Tom McCarthy's career really was directing Spotlight, which won Best Picture, the film about the Boston Globe uh, investigating the uh, abuse within the Catholic Church, which is a great movie. Like, I love that movie. And yeah. that's a very, like, Oscar-y movie. It's this important true story, and it's got a lot of big dramatic moments. But I feel like that movie tells that story in a really interesting way. It focuses on the journalist, which I, as a journalist, I always appreciate. And I feel like it gets that newsroom feel right. Great performances. Mark Ruffalo is, is excellent in that film. So I like Spotlight a lot. Uh, and uh, I feel like that's not what you meant, but do you, you know, what are your thoughts on Spotlight? I like Spotlight a lot too. Michael Keaton, Amy Adams, right? They're, they're all great in it, right? And, yeah. And um, he won best screenplay for that as well, you know? And also he co-wrote Up. You know, he's had a good career as a screenwriter. But Josh, the movie you want to talk about is The Cobbler. <laughs> and I, I have never seen The Cobbler. I actually was tempted to try to go watch uh, The Cobbler before this episode, just, just out of yes. sort of mas masochistic curiosity. And I, I, didn't, I didn't have time to do it. Um, and you know that my general dislike for Adam Sandler, even in his most acclaimed movies. So I can't imagine that of all the terrible Adam Sandler movies, the one that possibly has the reputation as the worst <laughs> that I would enjoy. But um, either way, I didn't get to it. Have you seen The Cobbler? I have, I have not, but I remember McCarthy defending it as like, hey, it freed me up creatively to do a lot of other things, right? Like, just kind of like Soderbergh when he did Schizopolis, <laughs> when he's like, now I can do out of sight afterwards, you know. Um, Dave, did you see The Cobbler? I was scared off by the bad reviews, honestly, and I just never got around to it after that. This once it got like to the video, sounds like a Patreon episode. Yeah, whatever. Maybe. I don't know what year the cobbler was, but that could be a bonus. I mean, hell, that could be a a, a flop episode for for the year that it came out. But twenty fourteen. There you go. So that we may not get to that anytime soon. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it is kind of crazy that you know he won that that. All of those Oscars were won for Spotlight, which, by the way, did not feature Amy Adams. It was Rachel McAdams, uh, just for us to clarify that. Yikes, that's not a good one. <laughs> Dave, can you fix that? Probably not. I'm, but you I'll, know, I'll try. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of it's kind of in the middle of other things that we said. Well, hey, um, that's easy enough. I thought all the performances were good. Like, I love Michael Keaton in there. Rachel McAdams is great. The interesting thing is Spotlight, which which won all those awards and was hugely acclaimed. That was sort of bookended. He did The Cobbler, then Spotlight, and then his most recent film, the Disney Plus original, Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made, which I have not seen. Have you seen that one, Jason? No, but I'm going to watch it. I, look, I didn't even know that was a thing, but he does do, because he directed Christopher Robin, 
which I really no, did. No, he he wrote but didn't direct. Okay, he Robin. wrote Christopher Robin. I like that movie a lot, you know. So yeah, I didn't care for Christopher Robin, but I feel like at least that movie is trying to sort of take this smaller scale dramatic approach to the story, which seems like his his wheelhouse. But yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe he has this this secret desire to make these goofy fantasy movies and it just doesn't really uh work out for or him. kids movies you know so um i will get back to you on timmy failure mistakes were made i did look up his upcoming projects and one of them is uh seems like a very another high profile drama called stillwater with matt damon and abigail breslin and the log line is a father works to exonerate his estranged daughter of a murder she never committed yeah, and that seems like it's more playing to the strengths of the kinds of films that he's made before. And that's something that actually I think is already uh, wrapped and is you know going to be released sometime soon. So it's not. A lot of times we talk about these theoretical projects that people are working on that never come to be, but that's a movie that we will get to see eventually. And I hope it's good. I am not going to watch Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made, but it seems like something maybe you could watch with your daughter. Oh, that's a good film. idea. I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> I should have thought of that, Josh. I was just going to sure. watch it on my own on a hot Saturday night. <laughs> I just, I was just saying that that was, that was, I don't have that reason to watch it. And you do. I am going to watch it. And when I do in, you know, we'll do it as like a follow-up segment on another episode really quickly. Timmy failure mistakes were made. Um, <laughs> so, but look, I think now more and more there is there are avenues for Tom McCarthy's voice because of all the streaming stuff. You know, it seems like he'd do a great limited series, like with all this kind of stuff like you're talking about. He likes these smaller sto stories that are character driven. And I think that, you know, there's there he'll find I think he's got another a big hit in him somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that those smaller scale character driven dramas do work well on the streaming services. And I hope he continues in that vein as opposed to this other weird fantasy movie direction of his career that seems like it's not uh fruitful necessarily. Well, well speaking of fantasy did am I correct didn't he direct the first Game of Thrones pilot that never got aired and was completely remade? He did and I wonder about that because the the reputation that that has is that it was terrible yeah. and that HBO nearly didn't go ahead with the series because that pilot was so bad. And so here we have, once again, Tom McCarthy helming a fantasy story that turns out to be bad. So I have to wonder. But I imagine that, that the fact that Peter Dinklage was cast as Tyrion Lannister in Game of Thrones probably had a lot to do with his connection to Tom McCarthy. Yeah, I would think so. Um, speaking of HBO, he was in season four of The Wire. He was like the main character. And I don't really love that season. Or was that season five? It's season five of season, The Wire. Yeah. Yeah, season that, five, the, the newspaper season. Right. It should have ended at season four for me. Season five, I would go back and rewatch. And he's fine as an actor, but I just feel like it got so far away from, you know, where the genius of The Wire was. So I, I didn't really like that season. Did you? Yeah, it was. I mean, I, I haven't seen it since it first aired, and I know it has a poor reputation. I feel like there was some good stuff in it. And, and like I was saying about Spotlight, I mean, I always like seeing a representation of journalism and David Simon is it was himself a journalist so he had a good sense of how newsrooms work and stuff like that but there were a lot of storylines in that season that didn't really work um but Tom McCarthy as you said is is fine he's continued to act occasionally mostly in smaller parts but has certainly focused more on his work as a writer and director and we have to talk about of course Peter Dinklage this was a huge breakout for him even though he'd been working steadily for quite some time yeah. i mean this made him into a star and i think even as famous as he is he does still still struggle to get parts that are not entirely contingent on him being a little person. I, I think the opposite now. I think you cast him because he's so good, but then you can build the little person, you know, background into the character. Yeah, and I think that's probably happened. But as we're saying, like with the, the movie about Hervé Villachez, it's like, that's, you know, the the... The default. I'm sure the people who were making that movie didn't think like maybe we could cast somebody else in this role. Yeah, but that was a probably a choice of his because that went to HBO and you know, um, you know that that was like, hey, do you want to do this? You know, because HBO loves him and they should. What does he have coming up, Dave? Anything uh, on Dinklage coming up? I'm looking right now. He's in that I care a lot that just came out. Oh yeah, that's a Netflix movie that that looks fun. Um, and I think he also. 
you know, we talked about how understated the station agent is and that character is so quiet and barely even talks a lot of the time. And I think he doesn't play that kind of character very much. I mean, and maybe it's because he played Tyrion Lannister, who's this very over the top demonstrative character, but I feel like he gets cast a lot as these big, uh, you know, metaphorically big characters with, with these, uh, crazy personalities. And he doesn't get to play that, that kind of small scale role anymore. That's true. That's true. But I think that's probably part of the Tyrion thing. But Josh, when you want to talk about big characters on HBO, <laughs> do they get any bigger than Jip Rossetti, season three of Boardwalk Empire? Bobby Cannavale with the great quote, I got a gun. You got a gun. We all got guns. I was waiting, really, ever since the moment that we decided to cover this uh, movie for you to bring that out, that great <laughs> moment, and your your great Bobby Cannavale, or really your the Jip Rossetti impression. Yeah, and that was because that was a great character. He was a great character, and he did go big as Jip Rossetti as, and that character was supposed to be big, and and you know the impression gets a little Pacino y in there. But I, I just remember hearing that and just walking around like I I would say it any chance I got because it's so. Just like flamboyantly over the top ridiculous, you know. So. It is. And that character is is so, I mean, he's menacing and scary, but I think he gets a bit cartoonish there. Um, but I mean, this was not as much as for Peter Dinklage, but I feel like for Bobby Cannavale, for Patricia Clarkson, and for Michelle Williams, this movie was really a, a significant stepping stone in their careers to getting bigger or more serious roles. I mean, Michelle Williams, I think, was still coming out of the shadow of Dawson's Creek here, um, getting to the point of being such a respected actor. So I think this movie is a milestone for all of those actors. I agree. And they're all wonderful. And they're all lovely to see in anything that they do. And going forward, you know, we should look forward to whatever they do. Yeah, I, the, any of them are welcome. If they uh, show up in a movie or a show, you know that there's going to be some good stuff from them. So uh, anything else on the legacy here you want to mention, Jason? No, I think we covered this one, Josh. It's it's just a nice movie that you might have missed or might not be aware of. And we these are the fun ones on Awesome Movie Year for us where we can maybe help put some new eyeballs on it. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think this is a movie that that a lot of people are familiar with, but maybe in you know, it could certainly use an even bigger audience. Right. So. Maybe they know it, but have never felt the impetus to watch it. Right. And you should. I think it's uh, it's it's short. It's easy to watch and it, it'll leave you with a with a smile on your face. Yeah, I could probably watch it again this week like that. You know, there are there are certain movies where you're like, I could watch that again, like right now. That that's how I felt about this. It was so enjoyable for me. But instead, you should watch The Cobbler. <laughs> hey, if we can get someone to donate one hundred dollars to a charity, I think we should do a Cobbler bonus episode. Maybe a, co a cobbler Timmy failure double feature bonus episode. Yeah, you pick the charity. Oh boy. Um, if there's any listener who wants to donate $100 to a charity, a good charity, not a bad charity, can't be a bad charity, <laughs> Josh, but a good charity, we will do bonus episodes of Timmy failure and the cobbler. This is never going to happen, but it's nice to think about. <laughs> <Yeah>. So anyway, <laughs> that is the station agent, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media and tell us how you want us to watch those other movies. Yeah, Josh, I got to tell you one thing. I got social media. You got social media. We all got social media. I'm at Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com is uh, like an old train depot. Needs some fixing up. Fixer upping. Uh, we are at awesomemovieyear.com, awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. Hit it, baby. I am at Josh Bell Hates Everything.com, at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget about our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, and also our Patreon, produced by David Rosen, where we just recently posted a bonus awesome movie year episode on Purple Rain. And of course, there's lots of other great content on there as well, from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, and my music career. 
Yeah, check that out. And maybe if we get people on there, we'll do these ridiculous bonus episodes. Yeah. Yes. But in the meantime, what is in our next actual episode, Jason? Well, Josh, I spoke too soon earlier in this episode, I believe, uh, when I said we started off this season with two movies that we really liked. And let's see if we could keep the streak going. Uh, because our next one is a box office flop, a notoriously hated movie, though I've never seen it, so maybe I will like it. It's called Geely by Martin Brest, featuring Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez, Benifer, J-Lo, whatever you call, what were they called? Ben? Yeah, Benifer. Benifer, you got it. Yeah. At the height of their annoyance. And I've never seen that either, so it'll be interesting to uh, gauge our reaction. So tune in next time for Geely, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.